Specifically, we've been focusing on psalms that speak uh, to and about uh, the Messiah. Uh, We have seen that he is the Son of God. Uh, We have seen that he has provided for us forgiveness of sins. Uh, We have seen, as we saw last week, that he's both priest and king. We have seen that he has loved us with an enduring faithfulness. And along the way, we saw parallels between what the psalmist was talking about and the Messiah. And today we come to what is the culmination of God's plan of redemption. He has been working a plan out from the very beginning. He's been working to reconcile and draw his, his people to himself so that ultimately he would bring his dwelling place to be among his people. That's what we talk about when we talk about the day of the Lord, the second coming, where Jesus comes down, where we have the new heavens and the new earth, and where the dwelling place of God is with his people. But what does it mean to build a house for God? Is it simply the making of a building? Certainly David, as we look at this psalm, his desire was to build a temple for God. He wanted to build an actual building, a place where God would live. So is it that we, in building these walls, have done what David has done? We have built a place, a place where God can live. Or is the dwelling place of God something different? Certainly, as we look at the Old Testament, uh, it was certainly different than it is now. In the Old Testament, uh, the Holy of Holies was uh, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And on the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is where the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, uh, physically dwelt on earth. But the dwelling place of the Lord has changed for us today. The Lord no longer dwells in a place, a physical place. He dwells in a people. We are now the dwelling place of the Lord. We are to prepare ourselves as such. All that has come to this point, uh, what we see here in this psalm, even what we see in the Old Testament temple, what we see in Jesus was to prepare us for something. It's a foretaste of what's to come when the dwelling place of the Lord would be with his people, when the city of God would be on earth with us. As we consider this psalm, uh, we kind of see two elements that are going throughout. David is committed to building a house for God. If you, cons- if you look at the story of David in the Old Testament, as you go through um, the book of the Kings, he was very consumed with building a dwelling place for God. It was not right for him to sleep while God has no dwelling place. But not only is David committed to establishing a dwelling place for God, the second thing we see here is that the Lord will establish a house for David. David's line will continue finding its ultimate fulfillment in the ultimate builder of the church that is the messiah the the one who we saw last week is the foundation the cornerstone of the house this psalm points towards the establishment 
of the house from which the Lord himself will rule over the entire earth. Again, as we see two focuses, we also see two speakers. The first being David, who is restless, who has promised an oath that he will not rest until he builds a house for the Lord. But then we also have the Lord speaking here, who formally declares his commitment to David and to David's descendants. The commitment that would be ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah. So we're going to see three points here as we come to our text. The anointed of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, and the place of the Lord. The anointed of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, and the place of the Lord. As we begin in verse 1, we begin by considering the life of David. And we consider the life of David in a very broad sense. It says here, remember David in his sufferings, in essence, how he endured many hardships. And there's not much specifically that's said here. But if you remember anything of the life of David, you'll remember many of his sufferings as he... um, was mocked by his own brothers as he had his encounter with Goliath, as he was uh, chased and harassed by Saul, who was unhappy with the fact that David would be made king and not his son. David endured much hardship. Uh, This does not even include the hardships he would experience uh, with, like his son Absalom and others. David went through all manner of hardships that he had to endure. And yet, in spite of all his hardships, in spite of all these things, uh, when the hardships were done, he could have just said, oh, now it's time to rest. Now it's time to relax. Everything is secure. But in his hardships, he swore. We see in verse 2. He swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. We see here David's commitment to God. He is obsessed and consumed with establishing for God a place to live. He would enjoy no comforts of his own home. He would not take a well-deserved rest, not until he could do all that he could do to establish God, God's dwelling place on the, on the earth. And you think about this and you go, well, that's uh, somewhat arrogant maybe. Or I, th- I think we can lose the, what, the, the focus of what David is going on here. Because uh, it's not that David was being presumptuous. We, we have to remember at this time that David's operating, he's understanding the, the world and, and God through the lens of the Old Testament, through the Ark of the Covenant, through, through the exodus and the tent where the, the presence of God came and dwelt. And, and, and he's excited and he has zeal for the worship and praise of God. So much so that when finally the kingdom is established, when it's secure... He wants to give God the glory for it. God needs a dwelling place on the earth. Not for, the, for God's sake, 
Not because God needs it, but for man's sake. A place where man could worship God on earth. Today, the nature, or the true nature, of the house of the Lord and his sacrifice has become apparent to us. Now we get to look back and we get to see why David was so focused on building a dwelling place for God. And we can uh, point back to the, the temple system and the sacrificial system and all that took place there. We see that it was in there, in the temple, that we see forgiveness of sins as blood was shed. In it, we see the emphasis of what David was longing for. Forgiveness of sins. The worship of God. So that today for us, the true sacrifice of the Lord has become made apparent. It has become made known to us in the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The one who is to be the center of our worship towards Christ who has suffered, to Christ who is now reigning, to him it is our worship to be directed. David was consumed with having a dwelling place for God because his desire was for God to be worshipped and praised. And we see here how determined he is. You, you see in the language here how determined he is. I'm not going to go to bed. I'm not going to enter my house. I'm not going to let my eyelids drop. I am not going to take rest until there's a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. He was determined. So much so that as the story unfolds, when he was denied the privilege of building the temple, God came to David and said, you're not going to build the temple. Your son's going to build the temple. It'll be ultimately fulfilled or built in Solomon. But do you know what David did? He prepared everything. He, he, couldn't, he, couldn't get, he couldn't actually build it himself, but he got all the materials ready. That's how fervent he was about this. He was determined. But to fully understand the determination of David, we have to begin to look, and we're just going to begin to look, not fully look, at the oath the Lord gives to David in return. Not in return, not tit for tat here. Uh, but we see here in verse 6, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of, the, of your might. And he goes on, verse 10, For your sake, your, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Verse 11, The Lord swore to David a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. There, and he goes on in verse 12, if your sons keep my covenant and the testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on, the, on your throne. God is establishing one who will sit on the throne of David forever. Verse 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion as his desired dwelling place. Even as fervently as David sought to establish 
a dwelling place for God on, on, on this earth, so too his son determinedly sought to establish a dwelling place for God on this earth. The son of David, the Messiah. Ultimately, we know many of his sons rebelled, didn't they? You get much past Solomon and things start to, the wheels start to come off. But we see the fulfillment of this oath in Jesus Christ. We see the evidence of this in his death and resurrection as he gave himself for sinful men. And in doing so, establishing God's dwelling house on the earth in his people. Because we don't just simply go to the cross. We move from the cross to the crown. We move from the crucifixion to the resurrection to the ascension and the establishment of Jesus on the throne. So that Jesus says, when I return, I will come again and I will establish my dwelling place among men. And we see here a pattern. David was committed. He was determined that God would be worshipped in his dwelling place. Jesus was determined that God would be given the glory. Are you committed to the Lord? For the sake of worship, for the sake of his praise, for the advancement of the glory of God on this earth, are you committed and determined? Jesus comes as the son of David. He comes with fervor and determination. He's established his dwelling place on this earth. He has secured for us this through his own shed blood. We are to live with an eye on eternity, yes, for when he comes again, but we are also to be building that house, not through our own strength, but through his strength. For there are those men, women, and children who are the dwelling place of the Lord, who are called to be his house. We are those who who have the very presence of the Lord. This is our second point. As we begin, if we look again here at verse 6, we see some interesting things that I think we can easily miss. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. And you go, what does that mean? What does that mean here? Ephrathah is talking about uh, Bethlehem. Bethlehem of Ephrathah, however you say that. If you go look at the New Testament, when it talks about where David or where Jesus was born, it says Bethlehem, uh, the city of David, Bethlehem Ephrathah. But then it also says we found it in the field of Jar. What did they find in the field of Jar? Now, the field of Jar at the town of uh, Kirith Jerim, in the house of Abinadab, Abinadab. For many years sat the Ark of the Covenant. Many years it sat there in the field of Jar, seemingly lost. 
And what you have here is two different things. You have uh, David, the seeming insignificant shepherd, and you have the Ark of the Covenant stuck away on this family farm. And they seem to come from nowhere. They seem to come out of nothing. It seems unthinkable. Why would the king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel, come from such a a, a no-name little place? Why would the Ark of the Covenant be forgotten for decades? Why are the priorities of God's people set according to personal conviction rather than according to his will and to his word? And the answer is not that God is absent from the throne of glory. It's that men have gone their own way. That they have neglected the sovereignty of God in their lives. Really, we can look at six and we can see it in two ways. Because not only David came from this insignificant little town, so did Jesus. The presence of God on earth, the the God incarnate. Oh, that it would be found in such a small little place. And yet this is what Jesus did. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. He endured the humiliation of the flesh. He suffered a shameful death. He came and dwelt among us. He brought his presence to us. So what should be our response? Look at verse 9. Let your priest be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of of your anointed one. Jesus has established his house, his glory. Are we overwhelmed with a desire for his house to be built in such this way? The disciples, in looking at Jesus in John 2.17, says this. His disciples remembered what it was written. Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus had zeal for the house of God. This is how he went about his earthly ministry. He had zeal for the house of God. It would not be that God would be left in obscurity in a backwoods town. He would be brought to the forefront. The dwelling place of God was to be with his people. The presence of God. So today we go, what does that mean for us today? What does it mean that the dwelling place of God is with us? That means that the dwelling place of, of, of God is in his church. No, not in these buildings, not in these walls, not in this 
piece of land or in any other place in the city or the state or this country, anywhere. It's in God's people that Jesus has sent into us his spirit so that now he's not building a physical house like David did. He's building a spiritual house. And we are the blocks built upon Christ. We should, with the same fervor and zeal, desire that that not be left in obscurity. We must tell others about him. We must celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yes. But it's not simply a day of remembrance that we do this. We move from remembering to declaring. We must be a people who, who, like David, are fervently building the house of the Lord. Because, because God has promised. It's not simply enough here that David took an oath. The Lord took an oath. I'm going to send one. One of your sons. And he will dwell in Zion. Because Zion is my desired dwelling place. And it will be my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But on him his crown will shine. You, you look at the description here. And, and if you were to look at the history of Israel. You would say well this has never happened. And you would certainly be right because the psalmist here, uh, the Lord, as he's making this oath, is not talking about any of these kings of Israel. He's talking about the one king of Israel. This heir of David's throne that we've begun to talk about. And and if you look at at the... Old Testament, you'll see that the line of David continues for a time. It continues on the throne. But it finds its fulfillment not on the throne of Israel, not in the way of the Old Testament kings. We find it in the Messiah who has established his dwelling place, who seeks to pour his abundant blessing out upon his people. We see the the blessing here in the the words of uh, abundantly bless her provision, will satisfy her poor with bread, will clothe the priest with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. He has provided this for his people through his son. God has done all of this. All the blessings will come to God's people because of the Messiah, because of his work. We conclude here by by seeing three images. Images that may be lost on us if we don't take time to look at them. Starting in verse 17, we see there's a horn, there's a lamp, and there's a crown. A horn, a lamp, and a crown. 
Uh, these are three symbols that are given uh, to the Messiah. Uh, a horn in the Old Testament uh, represented strength and power. Uh, if you think about a rhinoceros, you can think about a powerful horn, right? If you see a, I don't know how much a rhinoceros right weighs, I'm sure thousands of pounds, uh, over a thousand pounds, you'd think at least. You can imagine if it's charging at you, you would not want to get the business end of the horn, would you? Because it'll hurt. A horn had power and strength, but he ties this horn to a sprout. I will make a horn to sprout for David. And when you think about the word of sprout, uh, the word sprout, uh, you think of just a little sapling, right? Uh, Because even a tree begins as a sprout. And there is a feebleness to a sprout. But I don't believe that that's meaning that there's feebleness to the horn. What we see here is a temperance. Jesus has the power to eliminate his enemies, but he bore with them gently through his ministry. And even now, Christ continues to hold authority over the nations. But he patiently... He patiently waits. This Messiah has been given the authority. This son of David has been given authority. But that authority, that power has been tempered with patience. The second we we see here is the uh, symbol of a lamp. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. When you talk about the lamp... uh, even in the Old Testament, the, the menorah, the, the eight candles, uh, it was meant to shed light. Jesus, the Messiah, is the light. That Those candles, those, that, the, the candelabra was never to be put out because it was enduring. We see in it the, the eternal nature of the Messiah. Not only that, but the eternal a reward that he has given for us. The incorruptible life that he has secured for us. It anticipates the resurrection of all the dead. But finally we see the, the image of a crown. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. I don't know exactly what a clothing of shame looks like Uh, the most image I can ever come up with this is a dunce cap probably lost on maybe some of our younger um, I don't guess they do dunce caps anymore Um, but you remember the the tall, it looks like a birthday hat right but it's really really tall And this image of being in trouble and having the dunce cap on and it's a shameful thing a shameful thing, his enemies we clothed in shame They will wear it like a robe, but on him, his crown will shine. This one, this king will rule in Zion for eternity. There is none who are above him. Not you, not me, not anyone. He is to be given all the glory. He is to be given all the praise. He has been given to be given all the worship. 
Because he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one who on Zion, his city will dwell with his people. Oh, it is an encouraging word here of, of verse 16, uh, excuse me, 14. This is my resting place forever. I, for here I will dwell for I have desired it. And when you talk about how the New Testament talks about Zion and talks about the, the, the New Testament uh, church and its people, and we see this anticipation of our security of being with Jesus, that we will dwell, you get to dwell with Jesus for eternity. The message of this psalm begins with suffering. David endured hardship He endured pain, but it ends with a crown. Jesus likewise suffered, but he has received the crown. So what? So what? The New Testament tells us that if Christ is in us and we are in him, that not only do we share in his suffering, and you will, you also share in his crown. This message is for us that as we bear our own cross, We look forward to the crown, not one that we have earned, but one that Christ gives us by a sovereign grace and mercy. And therefore we are to worship him. We have been justified by Christ. He has sought us. He has bought us. He is bringing us into the glory of his presence. So we are to lay everything down at his feet. We are to give him worship. We are to give him praise. We are to build his kingdom here on, on the earth, not because it is the work or labor of our hands, but because he, we are his workmanship. We are his tools. The anointed of the Lord, while, while it begins by talking about David here, the anointed one of the Lord is the son of God. He has been set aside as God's son and, and as Lord of all. And with great determination, he set God's dwelling place among his people. And now we come into the presence of God. And we likewise are to come with great determination, not upon our own strength, but upon Jesus' strength. Setting aside all else to give him praise and glory. And we are to look to the ultimate dwelling place of God when Christ comes again, when his kingdom is established on this earth, when we come and we give all praise and worship to our God. What we do here is not just for fun or for whatever. It's anticipatory. We do it longingly, knowing that Christ is coming again. And we give him all the worship and praise eternally. That is his.
as we now move and transition, uh, of course, we're going to, next week I won't be here, but then we're going to start drawing and we'll kind of fall back into the rhythm of life and Easter will be over, of course, before you know it, we'll be thinking Christmas, I'm sure, right? And you're like, no, that's too soon to be talking Christmas, right? It's too soon. We're, we're just in May. I'm telling you, May's going to turn into June and then it's going to be August. And before you know it, it's going to be October because um, that's the way life goes, right? Um, and then we'll be talking about Christmas again and the birth of Jesus. And it's easy for us to, ref- to fall into the routine of year after year. You know, it's funny because we look here and we go like, well, we're not the Christ- Christmas Easter crowd, right? And certainly that's not true in a physical sense. But it's easy for us to fall in the Christmas Easter routine of the Christian faith, isn't it? What do I mean by that? Falling into a Christmas Easter routine. Uh, of that routine where we're just moving from, oh, isn't this nice? We're talking about the birth of Jesus. And oh, and isn't this nice? We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And then the, the rest of it gets lost in between. But would we, what would it be like if we moving forward said, I won't rest? And understand me when I say this. I'm not saying this because it's about our own strength or our own efforts or our own what, we, what can we do. But what if we had so much zeal for the glory and worship of God that we, did not, we would not find rest until God's dwelling place was established on this earth? <coughs> Understanding that God's dwelling place is not a building I'm not saying, hey, come and paint the walls because that'll, that's not what I'm saying. What if we did not rest until God's dwelling place, the, the fullness of the people of God were brought to him? We read this morning this great commission Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy uh, Spirit. There's an implication to what Jesus says right before he says that. He says, all authority and power, is, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Do you know what Jesus is doing in, in, in commissioning us at that point? He's giving us authority and power. Authority and power to go out and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, to establish his dwelling place on this earth. I love the language of the psalm, and it's easy to get lost in, in the language, though, and to think, oh, it's about my effort. So don't hear me say it's about our effort. That's not what I'm saying here. But there is a response. There is a, a proper response to understanding who the son of David is, what the son of David has done, and what the son of David is doing. And that response is to come in faith and zeal. Determination. To bring the dwelling place of God here. Both within ourselves and with those around us. Would that mark the coming months for us? 
Would we not lose the fervor of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Would we not lose the fervor we have to give him the praise and worship that is due his name? And would we not lose the desire to tell others about him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your psalms. We're so thankful for, for the way in which they even are covered in Jesus even though they were written long before Jesus. We're so thankful for God's, or David's son, your son, our Messiah. Oh, Lord, help us to understand that his dwelling place, when he says his dwelling place is among us, that that, that means his dwelling place is in us. Help us to understand what that means for both our personal lives, but also for the way we we live before others as we seek your glory above all else. We ask and pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.